Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Removing children from home, the legislative auditor weighs in. The Minnesota Office of the Legislative Auditor, or OLA, just issued a report on removing children from their families. You can read their findings and recommendations in the link that we provided in today's blog, or there's a link to a Star Tribune summary of the report as well. Ola discovered that practices among counties vary widely, including the rate of removals, social services and law enforcement cooperation, the availability of prevention services, uh, and this finding echoes other studies showing variability in related service areas. The overall result is that children and families are being treated differently depending on where they live in the state. The OLA recommendations include standardizing protocols between county child welfare agencies and local law enforcement, expanding the court's performance measures to include some child well-being metrics, and making prevention services available consistently statewide. These findings cry out once again for the Department of Human Services to assert a stronger role in developing statewide standards across all steps in the child welfare process. Our overall reaction to this OLA report is that there's a lot to like. This is largely because the legislative auditor is able to get information that's ordinarily unavailable. And this happens sometimes because the Department of Human Services and the counties are required to give OLA information they might not be willing to give to an advocacy group or to the media. But also, probably most of the time, it's due to the fact that the county-based nature of the Minnesota system means that a lot of information you would normally think would just be there has to be obtained by some special project or study. For example, whether services are available to populate case plans or the extent to which children are removed by court orders versus emergency holds by the police. The fact that I'm generally impressed by this report is good news because I've not always been a big fan of OLA. This began for me in about 2013 when we were able to get OLA to do a report on child protection intake. At that time, they came up with really similar findings to what they discovered in this report, this one regarding removals, However, their finding and recommendations generally kind of glossed over the problems that they had discovered in the details of their report. And so they issued summary comments indicating the system overall was working, overall was working pretty well. Uh, so I want here just to give a shout out to Senator John Marty because in the hearing on this legislative auditor report, he pointed out the cognitive discipline, uh, cognitive dissonance between their detailed findings and their summary recommendations. And that, by the way, helped us get back on track with the recommendations in the report. So in comparison, the findings and recommendations in this report seem to be consistent with the details of what they discovered. 
Now, we expect that not everyone will be satisfied with this product. In particular, I've heard, although I wasn't a part of these discussions, that the original impetus for this report was concerns by activists, particularly in the African-American community, about the disproportionate number of BIPOC children being removed from their bio families. The OLA report did address this in some ways. For example, they noted that state laws are very broad about when to remove children, and that contributes to the wide variation in local standards and practices. And of course, they didn't say this, but this would open the door for decisions to be made that were affected by local standards and by racial bias. Overall, as a result, there are just significant differences in general in whether families are kept together or whether children are removed. So in this respect, it's important just to recognize that the legislative auditor is a generalist group and it's not really equipped to look in depth at the reason for the disproportionate number of children of color in foster care. So again, as we've said many times before, getting at an issue of this nature would require statewide standards in the first place so you know what you're looking for and what people are supposed to be doing. Uh, So statewide standards for when to remove children and when to reunite them with their families. And this, in turn, would have to be supported by a robust quality improvement system that would be sufficiently detailed and have quality review processes to identify any disparities that are due to unequal treatment as opposed to other factors such as poverty. So that would involve these case reviews that are based on those standards, which would lead to reliable results that would be credible to people, and more importantly, results that are actionable. Being actionable, what's that? That means you have to have training on the areas that need to be improved on, then another round of follow-up with additional quality reviews to see if the changes are being implemented. So these and, and other elements of a continuously improving organization, you know, just, for example, regular team meetings, to review recent case case decisions against the standards, these are some of the steps that are needed to actually identify if there are disparities related to racial bias and why they're happening versus any other factors in the mix, and then know what to do to correct them. So support of having these components of what is sometimes called a learning organization, we won't be able to actually get at the issues that the activists were hoping this report would address. But we can get at some pretty valuable insights from this report, which could lead to, I think, some significant program improvements if the Department of Human Services and the counties take this to heart and start to take action. Just the fact, for example, that the legislative auditor kind of highlighted, brought to the surface, that state laws are really broad about when to remove children. And the result of that is that local officials make very different decisions about child protection from county to county. In addition, Ola surfaced the fact that case plans written by caseworkers in child protection are often very long. They said typically 30 pages, and they include both legal and social uh, jargon or social services jargon that lay people are just unlikely to get. The recommendation there is that case plans be simplified and written in non-technical language, and that by itself could remove a major headache for parents who are doing their best to comply with what the court expects them to do. One finding that we were especially grateful to see was that the relationships and the protocols between county and tribal social services agencies on the one hand and local law enforcement on the other vary widely across the state. The auditor juxtaposed two adjacent counties 
one in which 80% of removals were precipitated by a law enforcement emergency hold compared to 2% in the neighboring county. A more specific finding, for example, was that when child protection agencies are working with law, local law enforcement, they are more likely to issue an emergency hold and remove children until the courts can get involved. The implications of this is that children are more likely to be considered unsafe and removed from situations when social workers are involved. The importance of this was illustrated by last year's case of Autumn Hallow, where the Elk River police were called to her home 31 times over a period of six to eight months without ever seeing the child except waving from a balcony. Neighbors gave the police recordings of the child screaming, but still they did not exercise their authority to tell the parents either that they needed to see the child in person or that they would get the courts involved. During this time, there were, as best as can be determined from the case records, they're not entirely complete, only a handful of cross-reports to Child Protection Services, which in turn did not take action despite the police reports and the frantic pleading of the biological mother. As a result, Autumn was slowly starved to death during that half a year or more, and that included locking her in a sleeping bag and throwing her in the bathroom or closet for long periods of time and finally ending her life by suffocating her to death. The only recommendation here is for DHS to convene a work group that would sort out common protocols and training between local law enforcement and county and tribal child protection agencies. And we applaud this recommendation and hope that such a work group is initiated quickly. A further helpful observation in the report was that juvenile courts, which handle child protection in Minnesota, are focused pretty narrowly on meeting federal standards for timely resolution of cases. And they aren't looking at some other important measures, such as whether safety plans are in place or service plans are appropriate and being implemented, and if reasonable efforts were made to prevent the removal of children. Now, this discussion, by the way, of reasonable efforts surfaced some of the complexities in these issues, and they're not all that easy to measure. And that creates some problems with following up with this recommendation. For example, children are often not known to child protection until circumstances require them to intervene and remove the children. Secondly, the available, availability of services varies a lot across the state, both for prevention or any other services, because they are based on local property taxes, which of course themselves vary a lot statewide. Overall, however, despite these complexities, the recommendation that the courts put some effort into looking at the metrics that they track could lead to some important changes in their role in child protection foster care and make them more of a player in the quality of the services. So we commend or I commend the remaining findings and recommendations in the report to your reading. Uh, in some, however, I would say that if the Department of Human Services and the counties and the courts and the tribes and local law enforcement follow through on just the major findings of this report, that could lead to some significant improvements in the quality of services delivered to children and families in Minnesota. And one last thought. Just as I was about to send this po podcast into production, the Star Tribune published their lead editorial for July 5th, 2022, on this same OLA report. And they made pretty much the same points as I did in this blog, but of course their leadership is very large. So 
The message about paying attention to this important report will get to many of the thought leaders in our community. Now, as many of you know, in 2015, the TRIB published a brilliant Pulitzer Prize-nominated investigative reporting series on Eric Dean and 52 other children killed by their caregivers despite being known to child protection. But since that time, their coverage of child welfare issues has been on again, off again. So we are relieved and grateful to see them weigh in on this important issue, and hopefully they can help give some momentum to the reform efforts. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our e-brief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.